0: Good afternoon, folks. Um, Let me see. Goodness me. Right. Let's have a quick scoot. Lovely. Uh, Can you give me a quick cheer and wave a hand if you deal with two to six-year-olds? So two to six-year-olds, give me a wave, and a marvelous, quite a scattering there, and six to 11-year-olds, somewhere around there. Oh, it's quite a few more, and uh, 12 to 18, that kind of thing, marvelous, hormones, all the rest of it. Super. Lovely. Well, a very, very warm welcome to um, this keynote on active learning. Uh, Can I just start with a huge thanks to the ESARP team uh, who've put all of this together and a huge thanks to you. Here you are on a weekend. Uh, So hats off. I've got, you know, every admiration for doing that. Um, My aims are as follows. What I'd like to do is kind of offer today in the feeling of or the way of Socrates. There were two descriptions of Socrates that I quite liked. He was first described as a gadfly, that is, a rather annoying little insect that would just go in and provoke things. So I do want to say some challenging and provocative things, just to open up the questioning, perhaps challenge assumptions here and there. But it's, it's with good intention. The other description I really liked of him was a midwife to truth, which is a lovely phrase. Um, so I'm very aware and it's quite daunting always to do this to stand in front of thousands of years of teaching experience just think of the resource in this room Um, so I don't want to stand here as I'm the truth I'm the the final answer to things and it's going to be a jug and mug keynote where I I give you how to do things Uh, give birth to your own conclusions Uh, I'll present some stuff but give it a good kicking disagree engage that critical thought. Um, See what your own experience and your own thought and research and anecdotes will tell you. So it's really just an offering and see what you think kind of session. Um, I want to start by just sort of broad outline of what I think active learning is. We've had two marvelous introductions from Guy and Judy, just sort of painting their picture and their perspective on what active learning is like. I'm just going to give you a third, and I think that that three is interesting. There was a wonderful chap called Graham Nuttall, Professor Graham Nuttall, and he wrote a book called The Inner Lives or The Hidden Lives of Learners. And one of the things, after 40 years of research with learners, one of the things he discovered was that in order for a student to understand something, that is not just know it, but to understand it, you had to give that student or that pupil a minimum of three opportunities where you convey that information in different ways. So if we're talking about understanding something, not just knowing it, you've got to give those pupils a minimum of three opportunities to meet that material in different ways. So if you like, I'm the third after Guy and Judy. Um, and I'm going to paint a picture of what active learning is like from my perspective. Um, And then I'm going to hone in on some particular areas that I think make a difference. They're not meant to be exhaustive. They're not the only three. But I think these are three that don't often get enough attention, certainly from my experience of working with other schools um, internationally. So uh, I want to start, though. um, You know, there would be an irony if I just stood here and talked at you for an hour talking about active uh, learning. Obviously, you don't have to move your bodies here, but I do want to give you some challenging questions and activities as we go through. So I'm going to start with this. Um, In a moment, I'm going to ask you just to pair up with one other person, ideally. If you're kind of in a corner with three of you, two versus one is fine. We're just going to start with a quick game of verbal tennis, and it works as follows. Um, You're going to pair up, and in a moment, I'm going to give you a topic and uh, I, you want you to have a little rally, an exchange of, with examples of that topic. So let me just model that to make it clear. Let's say the topic was vehicles. So um, one of you would serve to your opponent, and you might start with the example of a vehicle, so you might say a car. Now your opponent has got three or four seconds to come up with another example to knock it back. So you might say a lorry. I want to keep the rally going, so you might say, okay, an aeroplane. Hovercraft, a little desperate, but, you know. Comes to this person, um, a monocycle, really desperate. Comes back to this person, but in this case, they can't think of an example in the three or four seconds. So that would be 15 love, or 1-0. Now, you want to keep that bouncing back and forth. I'm going to give you actually two topics just to play with, but, and here's the emphasis I want to make with this. I just want to offer you some locks or levels of challenge. So you've got examples bouncing back and forth, but you can negotiate to add another challenge. You can add, for example, the eye contact rule. doesn't need too much explaining this one. You just have to keep eye contact while you're playing the game. If you move eye contact, even for a second, you lose the point. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, OK, that sounds challenging, but I'd like an extra challenge. That's not enough. I'm feeling mentally frisky today. I've had six espressos for lunch, and I really want to go for it, so I'll give you another option or challenge, and it's as follows. So you've got examples back and forth, eye contact rule. The third thing you could add there is the um or er uh rule. And as you might suspect, if you say um or er during this process, you lose the point. If you haven't played that one before, that's a tough one. (laughs) So, those are the parameters. We've got three rules. Examples back and forth, eye contact rule, and or the um or er rule, up to you to negotiate what you go for. Now, topics. um, I'll give you a couple of topics. First topic is film titles. Oh, I can feel you stacking them already. What have I got? Second topic, 20th century inventions. Yeah, film titles looking pretty good now, isn't it? Yep, okay. So two minutes, pair up, get your level challenge, give it a go. <laughs> okay, gently gently bring that to a close, pause there. <laughs> Thank you kindly, pause there if you would. Lots of energy in the room. Bottle that inside for a moment and pause there. So. So, there's an activity. Um, The key point there is to offer levels of challenge. How often do we do that in the classroom? And you might think, of course, adapting it to different contexts. So I know know, you've got people who work with very young ones or very low ability in here, of course. So you might say, okay, uh, we might just do that. Um, with things we can see or things beginning with a certain letter or sound. It might be uh, things that are blue. In maths, it might be even numbers or odd numbers or prime numbers. In chemistry, slightly older, it might be chemical elements or transition elements on the periodic table. It could be artists, key characters in a book, um, things that happen between 1650 and 1700. Uh, it could be a thousand things, parts of a plant, parts of a mountain, etc. Uh, and you might have a thought or two about where you put that in a lesson. It might be right at the beginning to kind of funnel attention, get them focused. It might be standing doubles tennis, halfway through a lesson, just to change the pace, get them moving, a little bit more oxygen to the brain. It might be at the end of a lesson, little plenary activity. What were the key ideas today? What was interesting? What were the words I learned? So there's the activity, um, the idea of levels of challenge. But now what I'd like you to do is pause, reflect and think critically. Would you call that active learning, what you've just done? Was that active learning? So have a chat and be critical. That activity of verbal tennis, Is that active learning? Two minutes. Okay, a little reflection, a little critical thinking about an activity we did. Um, Can I just get a rough straw poll kind of vote on that? Uh, I'll give you three options to give me some feedback on whether you thought that was active learning or not. Option one is to say yes it was and it might not be totally yes, 100% yes, but you're kind of tending in that direction. It's, it, yeah, generally it was yes. Then there's the opposite, tending towards no, no, that wasn't active learning. And then the third option is to say, actually, I'm not sure, for whatever reason, I'm not sure that it was, I, I can say either way, I can't say yes or no. So you've got the three options. Um, would you raise a hand if you kind of said, yes, that was active learning? Raise a hand. OK, yeah, yeah, OK. Uh, it's about a quarter, maybe a third of you. Um, no, that wasn't. Raise a hand. OK, we're maybe 15% or so. I'm not sure. There's all oh, question marks about that. <laughs> Lovely, OK. Well, again, I, I won't put a definitive answer on that. But the very fact that there's quite a spread of opinion in the room means, first of all, this is complicated. Uh, and maybe there are many factors to this, and it's about our perception of what's going on there. For example, you might have thought, well, it was, it was kind of engaging. You know, was, there was a bit of pressure and I had to come up with something, and, but was I actually learning during that process? Um, or maybe you think, actually, that started to indicate that active learning is not something that you can spot in a one moment. That it might be part of a sequence of moves that happen, so maybe funneling attention and and getting me here and now ready to learn. That's needed first before I can actively learn. So it's a perfectly legitimate thing and whether learning itself might not be happening, but I am getting in the right mindset, or the, the mind state, to be prepared to actively learn. Maybe that needs to be done first. So uh, again, with Professor Graham Nuttall's book, um, he, he had a lovely way of describing this. It's of three worlds of the classroom, crudely speaking. He said there was a kind of the visible world, which is the teacher and the, and the pupils. And here we're engaging in this learning process, hopefully. And he said, then there's the semi-visible world. That is where the, the pupils are actually more preoccupied about the environment and who's doing what and who's around me and how do I fit in and what's the hierarchy of the people around me. And there's the kind of invisible world where the child is totally absorbed by their own thoughts, their own feelings. You know, that Elvis has left the building, basically. He's, you know, you're just wondering, oh, what about that? Now, it might be on task or off task, but there's these three worlds that we're trying to deal with, um, and in order to get that engaged, active learning going, we recognize, one, it's complex, and two, maybe it's a sequence of things, rather than just any one moment to tell us whether it's happening. Now, other aspects. Um, in the essence, this is the shape of what I want to do with you. Um, I just want to raise that question. It really connects with something really struck my heart quite strongly uh, with what Guy was saying earlier on about active learning, but for what? And in Guy's terminology, it was that sort of distant horizon, that far horizon, not just that near horizon of of kind of the grade. So I want to say a little bit to support and chime with that. Um, I want to give you a nutshell definition of what I'd say active learning actually is. You know, how would I define it? And again, that's not to swallow it as the truth. It's just to say, well, do I agree with that? And maybe I'd like some of that, but not all of it. The the encouragement here is to make your own. Give birth to your own definition to make it real. And then to pick out some elements that I think can make a significant difference. They're not all of the elements, but just to have a look at some of them and just give my kind of angle or flavor of those. So that's basically what I'm after. We'll have a final reflection towards the end. Um, To that first point, Active learning for what? I think that's really key to keep our motivation in mind. You know, goodness knows teaching is hard work, and it's demanding, and it demands great skill, uh, and a whole range of abilities, emotional, psychological, and physical. It's important to check in with why we bother, you know, the original fuel for learning. Um, So I just want to go back right to the start. Now, I'd run quite a few parent evenings, and um, when I go into schools, I sometimes meet the parents for a couple of hours in the evening, and I said, uh, I start with this question, I said, what do you really, really want for your children? And uh, and they're sort of shuffling about and a little nervousness, and I said, no, just, you know, in your heart, what do you really want? Um, Can you guess the answer about 80 or 90% of the time? Yeah, I just want them to be happy. And I say, oh, that, well, no, that's marvellous! And the other parents go, yes, that's that's so right, you know. Just uh, and I go, okay. So you would you wouldn't mind if Marco was a really happy little boy, but he got his happiness from lighting fires in small buildings, and those, or if if Mariana was really happy thief, you know. <laughs> And they said, oh, oh, hold on. It's no, 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 okay, uh, you know, I want them to be happy, but have some morals, too, you know, just know something about the right and wrong. I go, okay. So they, they, they know about right and wrong, um, and, and they're happy. Happy all the time? Have you met anyone who's happy all the time? I like, well, no. So what do you want when they're not happy, then? And they go, well, okay. So, and then we get on to um, happy and no qualifications at all. And then there's a, well, I would like a few, you know, just... Little, what, what kind of, a doctorate, yeah, okay, a doctorate, that's fine, you know, we'll go for that, why not, why put a bar on it? So, and pretty quickly, you can imagine, this conversation about what I actually want for my child is actually quite long. There's a lot I want for my child, and why not? But it's not simply about happiness. Um, and I just, you know, we could ask that question in another way, what is a successful life? That old philosophical, beautiful question. You know, what is a successful life? Why are we in education? What are we all doing there? Clearly, none of you joined to get great grades. I mean, that's part of the story, but it's not why we're there. So, I just want to break this idea of successful life down and sort of concept bust it. Well, first of all, successful life, yeah, a bit of money is nice, you know. Let's not beat about the bush. It's nice to afford a dentist within the next, you know, month or whatever it is. Uh, That's part of it, but clearly not all of it. Then there's sort of meaning. Meaningfulness. What do we do in school to develop meaningfulness? There's something that's truly motivating. Um, Other areas. Creativity. A successful life is surely, in some way, a creative life. Creative in thinking, but in the arts, and maybe also not just me expressing myself and creating things, but... The ability to appreciate the creativity of others. You know, really to listen to a beautiful piece of music or read a beautiful poem and just feel enriched by that. Then, of course, there's the academic kind of success. And by that, I don't mean schooling them for grades and grade chasing. I mean love of learning, where the grades and the results are a kind of a benign side effect, something that comes in the wake of being a great learner. It's not the goal. It's a wonderful symptom, Uh, but of all the research, there's a very interesting long-term study, it's about 70 years old, it's in America, it's the longest longitudinal study of human happiness and well-being and health and that kind of thing. Um, Started in the 1950s, they had about over 700 people on it, and they've they've interviewed them every year, they're in their 90s now, Uh, there's only about 70 of them left, and they they interviewed them over and over and over again every year, and they took blood samples and all sorts, and they, they crunched all the numbers. They said, what makes for a really successful life? And the number one predictor, way above so-called IQ or intelligence, uh, way above wealth, would anyone take a guess? What do you think the number one factor in this bit of research might have been for happiness? Well, a few murmurs... Quality of relationships. Quality of relationships. Absolutely. You know there's that difference between the two funerals. that turn up the funeral and people are talking about are they talking about the person celebrating who they were? Or is kind of they've turned up and it's kind of a business meeting. And there happens to be an excuse for running the business meeting. What kind of funeral test would you pass? What would people say about you? How are you connected to others? So the successful life, if you like, has many factors. And I think a core part of education is to do something about that. And absolutely, if you look at all of those, I'd say active learning is fundamental to all of those. How could you possibly achieve any of that without the engaged, active involvement of the young person? How is passive learning? going to deal with that or indeed the times ahead the 21st century <laughs> we're not short of challenges this century <laughs> now <laughs> who knows it's 2019 i won't even venture where that's gone but Now, I mean, population, I was born in 1968, so I've just, you know, tipped over the age of 50. In the year I was born, there was uh, about three and a half billion people. Now we've gone over seven billion. In other words, the world population has doubled in my lifetime alone. And when the children you are teaching are my kind of age, there's going to be roughly 10 to 11 billion. And that's going to have its knock-on effect, especially when you consider climate change and water and all the other AI, big data, biotech. There's a lot of big changes coming up. That raises the question about how do we educate them now for that long-term story, that further horizon. Have we got that in mind? So, clearly, it's not a question of filling buckets. Passive learners... It's about lighting fires. The old cliche, but I think it's true. So, what is a great learner? You know, what are these kind of active learners? What are the skills and dispositions? Well, again, I think Guy's done a wonderful job of exploring that. Uh, What are the skills and dispositions we're looking for? For my own idea, I asked parents and I asked teachers this question. I said, imagine a great learner they're fantastic, they're active, they're not blown over by a little puff of wind. They get that learning is seasonal, that there are winters and autumns where things are dark and difficult and struggling and unclear and demoralizing, as well as the summers, and you need the winters for the summers. It's not a story of one long summer. So imagine a great learner who gets that learning is seasonal. What are the skills? What are the roots, the dispositions we're looking for? And if I gave you, say, the top 14 out of thousand teachers, these are the most common ones to pop up. We'd love our kids to do this. And again, and I'm sure it's none of you, but I do go into schools and say, "Look, oh, this is very nice, but it's luxury. We don't have time." You know, we're up to here. I've got to teach the Vikings, you know. I've got, you know. And my response to that is, well, in a nutshell. <laughs> it's a false economy. There, it, it, Philosophically speaking, I've got to say, it's not an issue of time. You can't do anything about time. There's second by second by second. We get 24-7, whether you like it or not. The real issue is priority. Why is that more important than that? And I think this is a real challenge for schools is to work out what is our heartfelt priority for our students with that long-term vision of what we want for them, not the short term, just getting up to the next level, uh, to the next school, to the next interview, to the next job, to the next university. What's the long-term story here? So I say, active learning has got a big part to play in this, and let me just give you my nutshell definition. It's a working definition, give it a good kicking, but here it is. Active learning happens when students enthusiastically, so they want to, there's motivation there, interact with a challenge that leads to growth. So this might be collectively done, it might be individually done, it might be happening in my head. I may sit there quietly for half an hour and do nothing to the observer, but actually inside I'm fully engaged. I might be engaged with all sorts of voices and thoughts and images in my own mind. Um, Let me just go down that rabbit hole for a moment. Let's do some metacognition for a second. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm not fussed about the answer. What I'm really interested in is, how does your mind create the answer? What actually, honestly goes on in your mind when it's answering? So, ready for the question? Okay. What is five times seven plus two? Okay delighted to hear some murmurs of 37 there but we can we can park the answer park 37 the metacognitive bit the bit where you're floating above your your mind and seeing how did that happen um what did you actually notice going on and i'm just going to take some responses from audience members if i can what did you notice happen in your mind when i asked that question how did it happen um it might be feelings it might be things that you anything that you noticed and Going to very kindly have someone shift over with the microphone. Thank you, Madam at the Right. There, what happened for you? Uh, first, good morning, everyone. Uh, first of all, I tried to picture the maths thing yeah. uh, to know where to start. There were two things I had to do, and one had to be first. I needed to picture which one. Lovely. Thank you. And so, when you say picture, um, see in my mind, you saw it in your mind. Was yes. it in colour or black and white? On a board. <laughs> on it was a on white a board. board? No. I don't know. I don't know. Probably uh, with a black back. I don't know about the color of the black numbers. black back. Okay. And did it move, or was it like a photo? Was it like a movie, or was it like a movie, or was it like a, a photo? Picture. It was a picture. Yes. And you can see this without eyes. I'm sorry. You can see this without eyes. Uh, yes. Yes. Absolutely. So, yeah, I'm not being rude about you, but it's quite dark in there. There's, you've got you know, 1.3 kilograms of meat. Most of that's water. And in complete darkness, that can somehow create an image. Could you raise a hand if you saw something when you were doing the problem? Marvelous. And look around the room. It's not everybody, but it's a significant number of you. Um, if it wasn't seen, how else was it happening? For example, raise a hand if you heard a voice saying the answer, or saying something, and don't worry, you're not hearing, well, you are hearing voices, but so raise a hand if you had a voice say the answer to you. Quite a few, okay. So we might say some of you are hearing an answer said, some of you are seeing it. Um, This is just a little bit of metacognition. This is when I'm starting to recognize how things happen in my head. Now, you might be thinking, look, we're we're adults, we can do this. You can do this with any skill. I did this with reading. Uh, We had some seven-year-olds, and I said, okay, let's just try some reading, and let's see what happens when you read. So I'm not worried about what it says. I want to know what happens in your mind when you read. So it took a little explaining, but they got it. And um, this this boy put his hand up, and he said, "Uh, I've, I've got me in my head. And I said, I said, tell me more about that. That sounds very interesting. And he says, well, it's me saying the words to me. I said, it sounds like there's two of you in there. And he said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay, let's just, I want to check that out a bit more with you. I said, are you more the listener to the words or are you more the speaker of the words when that's going on? And bless him, he checked it. He said, oh, right, okay. And he said, and he said he could see these things being realized in his mind. He looked at me and he went, I'm the listener. <laughs> Who's the speaker? <laughs> what a great question. And then a girl put her hand up. She said, It's like a cinema for me. I can see this. And I said, Is it in color or black and white? She said, It's in color. Is it like a movie? Yeah. Um, I said, So you can see without eyes, and he can hear without ears. I mean, there's no eardrum wobbling there. And they go, Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I can actually. Yeah. And I said, Well, can this change? Or are you born like this? So I said, Have you got any suggestions or experiments we could do to see can this change? And they said, Yeah, okay. Um, if you can have a voice saying a sentence in your head, can you change the volume? I said, I've no idea. I've never tried that. Should we give it a go? Let's give it a go. So we gave it a go, and we found that you could get it whispering or shouting. And then they said, hold on. If you can have one voice, can you have lots of voices? I said, I've no idea. Let's get... And they, we found you could have a crowd whispering a sentence. By the end of our experiments, they were attempting the following. Can you get a crowd whispering a sentence with music of your choice in the background, and a firework goes off when you hit the full stop. <laughs> now, frankly, I struggled to get there at that time by myself, but a small, a small group of them could. Not one of those children left thinking the same about the miracle between their ears. My goodness me, if my mind can do that with a sentence, what else can happen now connecting this to active learning I think this awareness of how things happen in my head and when I recognize how they happen I find that I can change them that for me is a really key part or fundamental part of metacognition and active learning. I can see that this is a changeable thing. And if I can step back and see how it's operating then I can find other ways when things get difficult or don't work. So that's one way of thinking about the importance of metacognition and it's often the poor relative in schools. You know, we're good at the cognitive skills, the kind of reasoning and using memory and all that sort of stuff, but not very often are we very strong at the metacognitive bit. So let me just go into that metacognitive rabbit hole a little bit more. Um, Meta, Greek, means above, beyond, kind of floating, floating above. Cognos, Latin, so it's a weird mixture. Floating above my knowing. And, if I had to define it, give you a kind of a strict definition, here's one way of defining it. Metacognition is a pupil's ability to monitor, direct, and review their learning. They're consciously aware of their present knowledge and abilities, have clear goals, create strategies, and evaluate their progress throughout the past. So they can plan, monitor, and evaluate. Now, to be really honest, When I go inside and watch what's happening when I'm reading that, it's a bit complicated. My mind tends to shut down. I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is hard work. I've got to read that about three times to make sense of it, even begin to. So there's one way, but let me give you a second way of thinking about it. And this connects with the independent learning and the active learning. In the classroom, you set the objectives quite often, um, one of the practices in England's very common is to write the objectives on the board and the kids copy them down, you go, oh, I've got to have these three. Now to be honest, again, being brutally honest about that, when I did that, kids would kind of see shapes on the board and copy the shapes and put them down there and they had no clue what we were going after, they had kind of gone in the eye and then dribbled down the arm and come out the pen but managed to miss their brain altogether. So when we're setting a goal, I think we've got to be clear about the goal with success criteria. How do I know when I've got there? What's it going to look like? So let's say, let's say you're working with really young ones, and you're, we're going to build a rocket. There's our objective. We're going to build a rocket, and we've got a pile of materials here. We're going to spend a good time looking at what kind of rockets we might build, and here are some models from last year. Look at the quality of that. Look at the imagination there. Which one do we think is the best and why? So we have a chat about what exactly it is we are, we're after. Then, that's the first thing. Dead clear about what we're after. Objectives and success criteria. Second point then. What's my present position compared to that? Where am I? So we might say, well, I've just got a pile of cereal packets and toilet rolls and glue and scissors. That's That's it. So we can have a discussion there about what do you think your next steps might be? Well, you know, maybe we can sort through that stuff and see what we got. That might be... Okay, is there another possibility? Well, yeah. Maybe we could work out in a group who's going to do what. We're going to give ourselves roles. That's another possible step. Is there a third one? We want to research some stuff on the web. We want to look up some really cool spaceships. Great, that's a third possibility. Is there another one? And so on. So we have a discussion about possible strategies and next steps so that we can go towards our goal. And once they've, say, created four or five possible next steps, we have a chat about which do you think the next best one is then? Where where would you start? And whatever they go for, let them do it. Let them find out whether that was a good place to start. The key thing is to reflect back after saying, hey, what did you think about your chosen sequence there? Did that work or not? Was there a better way of doing it? Well, next time, how, sh- how should we do it? Now this, if you like, is an ideal way of using metacognition for active learning. It's getting them to really think about being independent. Let me flip that around and just sort of demonstrate how it can be in the classroom, which is creating dependence. So. I'm the teacher, I'm very clear about the goal for the lesson, I might write objectives on the board, they copy them down, but we don't really discuss it. We don't talk about what's it actually going to be like when we get there. So there's this vague kind of goal, but I know it. I can see their present position. I think, yeah, little Johnny, he's, he's, he's got those spellings okay, and he's, he's about there with his math, and he's okay with his... And that's what he's doing. So I can see his present position, and I say, Johnny, this is the next step you've got to take. And he goes, oh, right, okay, thanks. And, and, and hopefully he'll go away and do it. But about five minutes later, you know what's going to happen. He's going to come back and go, look, I've done the little step you said. Is that right? I said, what's the, what's the next one then? and suddenly if I keep my students in that loop of coming to me, I've got a very tedious teaching job. I'm just feeding them the next little step. So somewhere between say 2 and 3 when they start out with education and 18, somewhere I need to get them into that loop where they are aware of the goal, they are aware of the present position, and they are experimenting with the next steps, not always getting it right. But when it doesn't go right, they reflect and try it another way next time. And for me, this kind of metacognitive awareness of what the overall story is and how to get there in the little steps, that's absolutely critical to getting independent, active learning in the classroom. And this, again, is about the language we use what we model, the kind of questions we're asking in the classroom. Now, that was the first way I described metacognition. Uh, I got you to do it with the maths problem, so you did it for yourselves, you got an experience of it. Then I gave you the text version, then a diagrammatic version. Let me give you a fourth version. A great metacognitive learner is a bit like a great plumber. So let's say your boiler's broken, you think that's a bit of a disaster, I'm going to get the plumber come in, I really want a plumber who can look at the whole job, you know, they say, okay, broken boiler, I know exactly I've got the right kit in my van, all the right tools, and I can see that needs to come out, I've got to get the new one in, and they've got the whole picture of what they need to do but they've also got the little skills that are going to take them there step by step in a good sequence. So they go, okay, I've got the whole idea of the whole job, but I've also got the ability to cut a pipe and weld it well, and once I've done that, I'm going to make sure that's sealed, and then I'm going to check everything's working up till now, and then I know the next little bit I've got to do, and then I'm going to check, does the whole thing work at the end? So great metacognitive learner who's able to be active, that is that I can direct myself with this, is like a great plumber. Now, not all kids are like that, as you might be well aware. Um, when I used to set work when I was a secondary teacher, uh, I would love it if they could look at an essay in that kind of way, like, oh, okay, I've I got the point of the essay, I can see the overall thing, and I know how to break it up into little steps, and I'm going to build it, and a bang, beautiful. What I often got back was something more like that. <laughs> just. You know, I'll do, oh, I've, I've kind of got an idea. Oh, I'll just put a paragraph in like that. No, and, oh, and then oh, what's this now? And I, oh, there's that fact. And he said something about that last lesson, so I better bung that in. And you end up with something that's pretty awful because they haven't got that overall view. Or indeed, there were one or two students who did that. And you know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> so I think the metacognition is a, a really key thing and. You know, we can, let's get a little bit detailed about the specific tools that you might make here. Um, let's say for the essay planning, or indeed, this, you can use this in a thousand ways, treasoning. Uh, in order to empower the active learning, they do need specific tools in the toolkit. I like this one in particular. Um, let's, say, let's do it with uh, five and six-year-olds. A good active learner is a thinker, somebody who works stuff out. They've got questions to ask, they're, they're reflective, they want to interact with others. They've got a good vocabulary for thinking and learning. So let's say um, I might try treesing. Now, on this occasion, the kids came in and uh, I just heard this boy say, I think everybody should have a pet. And I thought, I'm not making this lesson up on the hoof here, but that is my lesson. So. I wrote up his opinion. Everyone should have a pet. Hello. Hello. (laughs) Slightly freaked me out there. Okay, so (laughs) first. So everyone should have a pet. Now there's an opinion, and it could be anything. It could be, maths is useless, climate change is man-made, Donald Trump's a great president, you know, whatever. Just a view. So we start with the roots. That is a reason for holding that opinion up. And so I asked the kids, I said, what do you think? Everyone. Should, why might that be? And they said, oh, well, it teaches you about relationships. So I labelled the root, okay. And then another one said, oh, it teaches you about, you know, how to care for something marvellous. And we we'll teaches teach you about death, okay. And, and, and we went on. We found there were lots of possible reasons for that. And then a child says, I think everyone should have a pet because I saw an elephant on television last night. <laughs> They've got the same kind of stunned reaction as, as here. It's like, you think everyone should have a pet because you saw an elephant on TV last night. Now you know what's happened. They've you know all elephants got mentioned in their in their head, a little associative thinking. Oh I saw something last night, I've got something to say. Ooh, like, I saw an elephant last night. Now, I still accept it. I say, Mom, well, okay, but we have a little discussion about whether we think that's a little hair of a root or do we think that's a very deep, strong root that really helps that view. And we decided pretty quickly it was a little hair of a root. So what we've done there is analytical thinking. We've broken it down. What are the reasons for that? But also, we've started to have a discussion there with six, five, six, seven-year-olds there about different strengths of reason. And this is is something that I find 17 and 18 year olds still don't get very often. It's not just a matter of numbers of reasons for something, it's about different strengths of reason for something. Then you do the same with the wind. Um, Different strengths of wind, that is reasons against, it's trying to knock that down. Everyone shouldn't have a pet because. So once we've analyzed the situation between these two, the for's and against. then we can talk about so what happens to the tree. That is, conclusions. Ah, okay. We found there were loads of roots, but no wind. We found it's bolt upright. We really agree with it, but we can say why. Or was it the case that there was loads of wind, no roots, tree completely knocked down? We can say we totally disagree with it, and we can say why. Or, and isn't it often the case, that there were quite a few roots and quite a bit of wind, in which case the tree, according to the kids, said, The tree's bending over. I said, What does that mean? They said, It's complicated. That's the beginning of open mindedness, an appreciation that there are arguments on both sides. Now, once we'd done this a few times, this treasoning tool, and by the way, if you're working with teenagers, this is a wonderful exam and essay planning tool where they can sequence the paragraphs in any way they want. You know, you get an infinite variety of essay structure from that. You say, okay, in this essay, I'm going to do, look at that first, then do those, then do those, and then conclude. Next week's essay, I'm going to look at that... Do a root and the wind against it, the root and the wind against it, I'm going to play that and then conclude. In the next essay after that, I'm going to start with a the conclusion, then look at that, then look at those. So you get a lovely variety in how they express an argument. Now what we've done there is given a cognitive tool that liberates the active learning. They can apply that to anything in their own way. I don't have to take them through the arguments. I don't have to lead them through structuring an essay. I said, look, here's the tool. Let's practice it together a bit. Now apply it to anything. And you can do it. You can put inventions on there. A chocolate fireplace or it might be an opinion, um, something that's debatable, anything that you want them to explore, a belief in something, a value, an opinion. So liberating active learning, yes, we have to give them that kind of metacognitive idea or independent learning of how we see the whole story. We're really clear about the goal, and we can take it step by step. And for those steps, some of these tools are wonderful for liberating those skills in the classroom. Now, last few things I want to, to share in this field. Um, tomorrow I'm looking at thinking much more deeply in the guise of philosophy for children for active learning. Um, there are other areas we could go into, such as engagement, I think is very important. Uh, we could look at memory and how that isn't taught at schools and how that might connect to active learning. For me now, though, I just want to kind of highlight something to do with the sort of mindfulness aspect of this, um, particularly the inner judge that we can have and how that can crush or enhance our willingness to be active learners. Um, years ago, when I was about 18, I did a 10-day silent Buddhist retreat. It's the kind of rock and roll teenager I was. And, uh, <laughs> and um, I was having a pretty rough time uh, because I had an internal voice or judge that was really quite unpleasant. If anything, I did anything wrong, my own mind my conditioned habits would really go at me strongly. It's kind of, I don't know, I wonder if I can do it here. It's like I do that, uh, have I got my face there? It's kind of me looking down at me going, you're no good. You're, you're rubbish. <laughs> yeah. like, li- living that, with that was pretty awful. Now, um, Judy, of course, referred to the importance of the prefrontal cortex. It's that bit. <laughs> I do go fine-grained. There we go. Now, that's not just a prefrontal cortex, that's my prefrontal cortex. And by the way, if you are single, and you think it would be quite fun to put that on your profile page (laughs) on match.com, can I just suggest don't? Okay. Now, it's it's this bit that we, you know, this is the the executive function, the bit that chooses how I respond to things. Um, I asked in a a school of teenagers, I said, what's your inner judge like? You know, what, what's it, what, are, what's, what are the choices and the feelings that are going on in your head 24-7? You can't walk away from this. You can with drugs, but that's not a good solution. So what's your inner judge like? Now, mine was like that. And after five days of six hours of meditating a day, I kind of, I was in hell. It's nice and quiet out there. It was so bad in here. So I, out of desperation, I went to the head out and I went, man, I've got to leave. I'm in hell. And he, and he said, hold on, tell me about it. And he said, hey, it sounds like you've got a rotten judge in there. And that was the first time I'd noticed that. I mean, some people have very soft judges. You know, these guys. Oh, everything you do is brilliant. you know. So we do need a judge. We need a critical voice, but it needs to be kind of there, you know? A good, balanced, healthy inner judge. So I said to the kids, what's your inner judge like? And these girls came out with some horrendous stories. You know, in England, we've got... A quarter of the girls have got stress, anxiety, bulimia, anorexia, stress, anxiety and depression. One in four between 17 and 19 years old. That's insane. Their internal world is horrific. So, I so said, well, who would you choose? If you could sack this unpleasant judge, and you can, who would you replace him with? So, for me, I made a panel for the next five days at the retreat. I got the Dalai Lama, a bit of nice wisdom. Um, Famous cook, purely for the nutritional element. Robin Williams, comedy. And (laughs) just, just, just kidding. Although, you could have Donald Trump as an internal judge. You don't have to agree with him. Um, Actually, Tim Peake, an English, um, he's an astronaut, is floating above the whole situation. And what I did for the next kind of uh, five days at that retreat, I replaced my unpleasant internal judge with that. And that changed my life to be relieved of the painful, conditioned nonsense that I took to be the truth. And as soon as it was pointed out, no, that's a story. And you don't have to give it power by believing in it. You can find your own way. That, I think, is when you really get into the deeper active learning. You go, okay, how's this working? And can I get it to work for me better? And if I can have that panel, maybe I'll take more risks. I'll get involved. I'll be more independent. I'll be willing to share the journey with others more. There are times, certainly in the last couple of years, when I've looked at the world and I thought, oh my God, this is a real mess. Some extraordinary world leaders and sometimes you just feel like it's sort of like an oil tanker that's just going off in one direction. And there was kind of in my heart, there was a bit of me was going, wow, this is overwhelming. Well, maybe, but I would like to end on just this thought that actually all of us here are trim tabs. Do you know what a trim tab is? No, a trim tab is a mini rudder. On the oil tanker, It's got a huge rudder, as you might imagine. And in order to turn that rudder, there's a little rudder on the back, the yellow bit. And all of us here, when we walk into that classroom, all of us is that trim tab. It might seem like an overwhelming, huge thing to try and change what's going on. But if we all turn our little bit, and we all build the kind of learners that Guy and Judy and I have been talking about these active learners for that long-term vision, then I think you'll see serious change in a very, very real and achievable and empowering way. So good luck with the experiments, folks, and looking forward to the rest of the conference with you. Thank you.